Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. You're very welcome along to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, from Graham Dwyer to Jerry the Monk Hutch, we'll hear how technology has played a key role in some of Ireland's most prominent criminal trials. Derek Riley has the rundown on the new Mini Coopers and an awful looking BMW design concept. Plus, I'll give you a chance to win a 55-inch N19 TV from Telefunken. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. But we're going to start this week with one of the co-hosts of one of my favourite podcasts. I mentioned it on The Hard Shoulder on Thursday, but it's called Shattered Lives and it's hosted by Michael O'Toole and Paul Healy of The Star. I've been listening to it from the very beginning. And one thing that has really struck me is just how much technology features in the different crimes discussed, be that CCTV, cell site analysis or bugging devices. Michael O'Toole is the crime and defence editor of the Irish Daily Mirror and The Star and he joins me now. Uh, Mick, I'm delighted to have you on. Thanks so much for your time. You've obviously been writing about crime quite a while. Um, is talking about crime on the podcast different? Like, does a different switch go off in your brain when you're chatting about it versus sitting down and writing about it? And is it possible to say which of the two you prefer more? I, I, I really like doing the pod, Jess. I have to say, it's it. I, I would tell people this. It is sort of, I think it has reinvigorated my career as a journalist. So I, I'm, I think I'm what they call a veteran journalist now. So I'm, I'll be 30 years at this in in October. And that's a long time to be on the front line for any reporting gig. And it does really take it out of you. And sometimes you can get very jaded. So what I like about the pod, as I said, it has reinvigorated me and it's great to be able to contextualize things and talk about things. So say if you and I are doing a story, you know, we, we might have to do five stories in a day. You do one hit, you go to another, you go to another and you go to another. And it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. And I always said this, that when I write a story, before I saw I'm part of Reach now, which is the mirror. So my stories go up online, which is an added bonus. Before that, in the star, we didn't really have a web presence. So the stories basically went in the paper and stayed on my computer. So Reach came along and bought it. So my stories now go online. But before that, it was just, it's very, very binary. You wrote the story and it stayed in your computer. And I didn't have really many opportunities to contextualize and talk about things. So that's what I like about the pod. You know, Paul and I bounce off each other. And because I've, been in the game more I have lots of stories and lots of you know examples and you know sort of anecdotes which sort of I think enliven the process and really show what it's like to be a, a crime reporter and because like you know we were talking off air about one case you mentioned there about Graham Dwyer and about cell site analysis and telephone analysis I remember the first I can talk for hours about the first time cell site analysis was used in any Guard case, and that was 1999. I remember actually reading the story in the Sunday Times. A fantastic, uh, fantastic journalist called Mia Sheehan broke the first story about cell site analysis, and it was in relation to the Oma bomb. So I can talk about that in the pod because, and you don't really get a chance to do it when you're doing a story in the Star of the Mirror because you have to stick to sort of straight up reporting. Whereas the pod lets you talk about crime and contextualize it and have a few anecdotes. Yeah, and that's something that uh, it's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on because you have been doing this for such a long time. Obviously, technology has really infiltrated every walk of life and crime is no different. And there are so many different examples of cases that 
I'd be aware of where cell site analysis was used, where CCTV was used, where, you know, encrypted messages or encrypted phones were decrypted and were vital in different cases around the world. Have you noticed that as a a key trend or are the themes of crime still the same and now tech is just a different tool for both the guards and the criminals? I have definitely noticed it and I'll just give you an everyday example. Um, a couple of years ago, so I, I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've obviously have some, some subscribed to the Garda Press Office email list, so all the press releases, I don't know if you get them, but I know obviously in News Talk you get them. If you look back, I think it was about maybe three years ago, every witness appeal would have, you know, before that it was, you know, we're looking for any witnesses to come forward. Now every witness appeal includes a call for any drivers who were passing and had dash cam footage. Mm. So that shows you how the guards are tuned in. I have a dash cam in my car. I, I've recorded very various things, you know. Um, so that is not, it shows you how sort of fluid and flexible the guards are. They see this, that lots of more and more people are having dash cams. And I'd say the more we get into, say, self-drive cars and all that sort of stuff, it'll be really, really vital, all the cameras in cars. So the guards now ask for anybody with dash cam to come forward. And that, I think that shows you how technology is impacting in every single aspect of any guard investigation. Yeah, um, I'm sure everybody was hooked to it, but I know I was. Uh, your podcast during the trial of uh, the monk, Jerry the Monk Hutch, um, it was fascinating on about 17 different levels, but I was very interested in the uh, recording that was captured of um, Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall in the car, how that was uh, captured, how it was presented in the court and the value that it added to, um, I suppose, both sides. Both sides had something to say about it. From a journalistic point of view, is that something that happens often where, you know, a piece of evidence is brought in that was captured in secret and then presented to the court? No, and I, I, as you said, Paul Haley did most of the, the the court case. He did a fantastic job, but I was in, Paul was away, so I was in for the recordings. They were played twice, and, and it was over, I think, three days. And the first time I was there for that, so it was really, really interesting hearing it. There have been, that is one of the first times that, uh, I think it's the first time that a recording has been played like that. Now, there have been a couple of other trials in relation to the Kinnan cartel, uh, efforts to kill other members of the Hutch family. And there were recordings, but if memory serves me right, the transcripts were read, not to actual recordings themselves being played. Now, I'm, I'm open to correction from that, but I'd be 99% sure that that was the first time recordings were played like that. So that was an interesting departure by the Garda Shikana. And what's really interesting, I know this, I wrote a book in 2000 called Black Operations, the Secret War Against the Real IRN. That was about Uduma Bomb and the, the National Surveillance Unit, which was heavily mentioned in the Hutch trial, broke into several cars controlled by the Real IRA that they were going to use as bombs, as car bombs, and they fitted trackers and they fitted bugging machine, bugging devices. But that evidence was never played in court. So up until recently, Guardi used buggings and trackings as intelligence rather than evidence. So in other words, you would see in a in a, a guard given evidence in a trial about we've got confidential information and they wouldn't say that they had recordings or tracking devices or whatever. Now they've sort of come out into the open and they've openly said, yes, we have tracking and we have uh, bugging devices on this. But I do think, I think it is fair to say that the NSU or the National Surveillance Unit, I don't think they were overly comfortable with aspects of their trade craft coming through. Like for example, Nobody really knows how the NSU 
but uh, into Dylos car, the book. Mm. And that was never said. And that's tradecraft, so they're very, very sensitive about this. But there is, you know, that's the first time in my memory that uh, the evidence, the oral, oral evidence from a bug was played in court. I don't know if it'll happen again necessarily. That was a big case. Yeah, but I, I do think it's interesting to see that those techniques are now or have been deployed. And as you said, it may not become the norm, but it is an interesting departure because, you know, we we see stories all the time of, you know, individuals using air tags to track their kids so they can see where they are and all that sort of stuff. So this technology exists. And from a policing point of view, sometimes being, you know, a good uh, armchair detective myself, I'm like, well, why don't they just use the bloody data that's out there? Because we know it's out there. And one thing that I really appreciated with yourself and Paul's conversations and the the dialogue around all of this in, in your podcast was it's not black and white. There's issues around, you know, data retention, data collation, GDPR. Like there's a whole host of... I suppose, regulatory and legal issues that the guards would have to comply with. It's not as easy as just sticking an air tag in the back seat and then off you go. No, and you have to go to, for the case of tracking, you have to go, uh, you, you, it can uh, it can be authorised by a senior mm. officer, but then for a bugging device, which is separate to a tracking device, a judge has to say yes or no, and there has to be hearings so for that to present. So guard, the, the, the courts are very zealous in protecting protecting people's rights. And even... Say in relation to you and me, um, the, the Supreme Court recently ruled that the guards seized uh, computers and a phone of a journalist called Emmett Corcoran, who is in Longford. You may remember the Strokestown incident when these people attacked a house that had been seized uh, or repossessed and it was a very, very valid attack. Emmett Corcoran came on that scene shortly afterwards and the guards wanted, the guards believed he had evidence about sources on his phones and they seized it and he obviously refused to hand over his pen and it, it went to court and the Supreme Court ruled in his favour and therefore in our favour that there has to be a test before which Gardy can ac- access and get our phones or can access our phones and even we, we did speak about Graham Dwyer. Dwyer brought a challenge to the guard out retention of data if it was for two up until 2018 when he won his case guards could access anybody's data over a two year period the detective chief superintendent in a group called security and intelligence used to be called crime and security just had to sign a form went to the providers and they handed over all your billing so every call every text that you have made and received was given to the guards now that can't happen there have to be there have been there you know that was that was called into question by Dwyer. Now the justice minister had to sign another order but it just goes to show you that there are checks and balances and even journalism was specifically mentioned there was a a, a sort of commission into it and they did express reservations about Gardy getting journalist data so there is European law and there is Irish law to protect journalists basically Yeah and obviously you know with the um, rise to prominence of social media and so on how has that changed or has it changed how different sources get in touch with you and whether it is giving you tips or giving you the heads up on something like does that happen quite a bit on social media? Uh, I'm very, yeah, it, I'm very, I'm, I'm extremely reluctant to talk about sources. I know you're not asking me about sources, no. but I'm extremely reluctant to talk about source development because you and I, as journalists, and be to me uh, chatting the breeze. But this is somebody's career and livelihood. But what I can say is, um, social media, for, for me specifically, has been a massive boon for source recruitment. Now, I'm not going to say how I recruit these mm. sources or, or who they are, but um, 
and, and, and I'm saying this openly because it's it's on my Twitter handle, my Mick the Hack on Twitter, and you can see my pinned tweet that there are ways of getting in contact with me. One, you know, there are lots of apps. One is Threema. Now, that's very good because it's anonymous. So I don't know who they are. Now, that raises ethical questions for, for journalists. Can we trust people who are anonymous? I can, personally. I, I, my interest in who they are, I don't really care who they are. My interest in is what they're telling me. Is it verifiable and is it true? I know some journalists will go, oh, I don't talk to anonymous people. If people want to protect themselves by talking to me anonymously, I have no problem with that. People can contact me in various ways. On my pinned tweet, I talk about Threema. I talk about people can DM me for my signal number. They can message me on, on, on Snapchat, which is mad because I spent ages trying to find the safest app for talking to somebody. It turns out it's an app that my teenage kids use because <laughs> the messages delete and they're not stored and there's no you know metadata and all that sort of stuff. So there are plenty of ways that sources get, can get in contact with me and I I encourage them to talk to me in any way in which they feel most secure themselves. But I do say this, and there's plenty. I, I have put up the stories beside it. I've been in court. I've been. I, I think it's about 26, 27 times that Gardy came to my office and asked me who, who my sources were. I, I've appeared in tribunals. I've appeared in high court cases. And it's very lonely when you're on a stand and you say you have to protect your sources because you don't know how the judge is going to react. Mm. Thankfully, in the, in the times when I've done that, the judge has accepted my uh, my need to protect my sources. So it has, you know, it has. But he could have said, he or she could have said, no, Michael, tell me who told you or else you're going to the jail. So it's, it's, it's a very lonely position. But look, just to go back to your point, uh, social media is a massive boon for source retention and source protection. And there are several apps that you can use to talk to them. But I think one thing that's very important for any reporter is you have to keep up to date. There was one, do you remember, I don't know if you remember this, was it an app called Disclose? Do you remember it was an orange one? I don't know if you ever, ever come no. across that one. That was, it was used by the Americans and they were all talking to each other and I made inquiries and it's not, a, it wasn't as safe as I had been hoping. So I quickly dumped that. So you have to be like, you know, you have to be flexible and you have to keep checking. Like every couple of weeks, I will do a search and go, is Threema safe? Is Signal safe? What is the most secure app for journalists? So in other words, you can't just sit there and go, right, I've got Threema and that's me. You have to keep going and you have to keep checking their validity and their security. Yeah, and that uh, the protection of the sources thing is super important, obviously enough. But aside from us using it as a tool for our jobs and our journalism, obviously criminals are using different encrypted platforms and the ways they communicate, you know, it's no longer one Nokia 3310 calling another Nokia 3310, one Vodafone customer calling another Vodafone customer or whatever network it is. The levels of sophistication have increased and things like disappearing messages and encrypted devices, I'm sure, is an absolute pain in the face for investigators in whatever jurisdiction when they are trying to, I suppose, go that last, the, the final mile in an investigation. Yes. So there are, I use encrypted messages. Um, I presume you do as well, Jess. Yeah, and so they're good for, I would consider myself a good guy, but the bad guys use them as well. And they do talk to each other. There was... You'll know about, and your listeners will know about EncroChat. So that was an, an encrypted phone system. That was busted, I think, around 2018. But there's been a couple of ones. There was another one that had Sky something that was busted by Europol and the French police and the Belgian police, I think. And they were literally phones that had their own network. 
so that you could talk to each other and the messages would disappear and everything. I actually think the days of things like Anchor Chat are over. I think we're going to go back to the days of criminals using phone boxes to talk to each other because EncroChat, it was breached and it's led to massive operations all over the world. In England, there's a thing called Operation Venetic, the National Crime Agency. We're given all this data of all the messages relevant to Britain. And I think hundreds of people have been charged. There have been millions of pounds worth of drugs seized, loads of weapons and cash. There haven't been one in Ireland yet. And my belief is, and the, and the guards have been criticised for this, I think it's slightly naive. My belief is, as I said earlier, about the difference between intelligence and evidence. So the NCA in England are using all the EncroChat data as evidence in court cases. My own view is that the guards, because there were there were parcels of data given to every police force in the world, right? I think the guards are using this as intelligence rather than evidence. And I think I know why. Ireland has a written constitution. You mentioned the, the, the Hutch trial. Jerry Hutch's defence tried to have elements of the, the bogged conversation ruled uh, ruled inadmissible because it happened up north. Now, the judge said it was illegal, but let it in, but she disregarded the evidence in the end. So I think the guards are painfully aware. I mentioned Graham Dwyer, Mountain Legal Challenges. Uh, Ireland, and I think it's one of our greatest assets, our legal system is on the side of the accused, in my opinion. So that means that you and I, if ever we're charged with anything, we can challenge every aspect of the, the, the state's case. So the guards were aware of this. And this is my theory. It's a strong theory. It's a very educated guess. So I think the guards aren't using it as evidence because they know it will be challenged. And if they lose one case, that's everything out the window. So they're using it as, as intelligence instead. And I think it's been very successful. But is that not then discounting the possibility of having some dynamite evidence that you're not bringing to the table? Yes. So I think what they have to do is that they have to assess each one. Now, what would be really interesting, we know uh, Drew Harris said this a few weeks ago, that the guards have sent files on Daniel Christopher and Christy Kenning to the Director of Public Prosecutions. Now, that the guards have asked the DPP to charge the proffer charges of directing a crime gang to these three men. Now, that carries life in prison. Now, so I would not be surprised if they have evidence phone data, bugged, you know, EncroChat stuff, all that sort of stuff. And I think the Kennehans are such a big catch that the guards would risk it and they would go for the legal challenges and all that sort of stuff. So don't be surprised if they decide to move away from intelligence for middle and low fish to bring in direct evidence for big fish like the Kennehans. You have to make a, they have to make a, a risk assessment and go, right, if we lose this, it sets us back. Is it worth it? It's worth the risk to get the Kenyans behind bars. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Yeah. Um, and obviously, as you alluded to there, they are the big fish. But if we look at some of the smaller fish, I know you guys were recently talking about uh, some of the stuff that's been going on in Dublin City Centre and the safety of Dublin City Centre and so on. Just with your experienced crime hat on, what would be your take of what's going on? Is it just that people feel a bit feral after the pandemic and now they're acting the Egypt? Is it people being influenced by social media and just going out and trying to cause a bit of crack? Or is it just usual bad behaviour? I think it's everything. I, I Some guards and some politicians I, I, I've spoken to think that there is a serious issue about, let's call them the pandemic generation. Mm. Kids who were maybe 13, 14, 15, when the pandemic hit and they were at a very impressionable and very vulnerable age. And suddenly all their external supports were stopped. 
So youth clubs, GAA games, you know, everything stopped. And some guards would think that had a, that had a devastating effect on that cohort. Look, this was the whole thing. You know, I always say this. Some days I could be, I'm just going to pick a town, I could be in Limerick three days, three times in a month over three separate murders or three major incidents. But the next time I could go to Limerick could be in two years. So there might not be a murder in Limerick or Galway or whatever for another two years. And sometimes things just happen. So I, there is a, I was talking to an academic and he said that this is a scientific thing or there is a theory that there are random events that just happen in one area, you know, that sort of thing. So look, you know, we had the attack on Stephen Termini, the American tourist. We had the attack on a couple of English tourists. We had another English tourist. I did a story on being assaulted, knocked out by a woman who stole his phone and his necklace. All happened concentrated within three weeks. We could go another five or six weeks before, without another tourist being attacked. So look, it just it's like that whole thing about events, dear boy events. Things just happen together at the same time and who knows why. So is it a crisis I, I I walk around Dublin. I don't know you about you, Jess. I walk around Dublin. I've done for three decades. I've never felt unsafe. Walk I, my offices in Talbot Street, right opposite where Mr. Termini was attacked. I walk down North Earl Street. I walk around the Spire at night after having a few jars, you know, before lockdown, whatever. I, nothing's ever happened to me, but that's not me minimizing what happens because I know other people can feel lucky. But I did speak to a business owner in South who has built businesses north and south of the Liffey in the city centre, Smithfield and around Stevens Green. And he talks about low level crime is rampant. They don't, they end up not reporting most of it. It's just everywhere. And he is decrying the lack of guard of visibility. Mm. Yeah. And look, I, I do think there's there's so many different elements to this. Guard of visibility is one thing. And then I also think, what is the barometer of antisocial behaviour or, you know, borderline criminality or whatever it is? You see people acting the Egypt all the time and it can be a pain in the face, but that's the height of it. But it's when it goes beyond that and when you are walking around town feeling unsafe or when you do see something and you don't know what to do, that's where the big problem arises. Um, I can't let you go without asking you about your novel. I have to talk to you about it. I need to talk to you about it. Uh, it's called Black uh, Black Light, and I want to know uh, just from going going from writing copy for papers and online to writing a novel. How was that gear shift in your brain? It was horrendous. It was. <laughs> and I, I I I don't want to look. It's like every. It's like every there's I mean, there's this famous joke about two people at a party and one says to the other, yeah, 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 I'm writing a novel. And the other one says, yeah, neither am I. So <laughs> I think every journal, every journalist thinks they're a writer. Right. Yeah. I'm a hack. I, I consider myself a hack. But I always wanted to be okay, it's like all of us. We always wanted to be a writer. So I try. I started. I actually I remember when I started, it was after the Graham Dwyer trial in April 2015. Mm. So I started working on it probably around. October 2015 and I got it done 120,000 words and I, I got maybe I got it done by 2017 and I thought happy days I am the next John Connolly no problem right mm -hmm. and I sent it off to a couple of agents and they came back and said it's shite or it's crap <laughs> so that was that so not but, but you know it was the best thing that happened because they said you know nothing about characterization your dialogue is terrible and essentially what they said was you're writing this as a journalist who would write uh -huh. a 500 word story and it's completely different like for example right say if i'm doing a story about daniel kenyon as a journalist i would say mob boss daniel kenyon 46 if i'm writing a, a story about someone like daniel kenyon 
You have to describe how, what they look like. You have to describe, you know, their mannerisms. You have to give them a character. And I had none of that in my book. So I went back and I deconstructed the book. I read books on how to write. And I looked, followed as much advice as I could find about how to write. And then I rebuilt it again. And you know what? It's it's actually out a year next week. And I'm extremely proud of it. And yeah. um, it hasn't made me a millionaire. But uh, the most important thing for me is... Uh, it's it's a police procedural, so it's obviously about. I don't know if you've read it, but it's about have, yeah. a bit of journalism in it. Okay, yeah. right. So don't give. Did you did you spot the ending? I'm telling you, I'm not giving any spoilers away because we're going to start a book club here on the show, right? We're going to start a book club on the show, and this is going to be one of my picks. So everyone's going to we're going to have the big discussion about it. Then we might get you back in to do like the author's yeah. thoughts. No, the, the reason why I'm asking is, and and now uh, very 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 capable detectives who mm. have so, done some of the biggest cases in Ireland didn't get the bad guy in this, right? Every woman who has read it said to me, I know who that I know who the bad guy is. Yeah. So there's something women just have this intuition. I'm talking like nine out of ten women who have spoken to me, but I said, Yeah, there was just something about a certain person, right? But all these detectives were going, oh, but anyway, so the best uh compliment I got, there's a bit of journalism in it, as you can see, and that's all real. I there was a scene where you may remember this, there was a scene where a journalist has asked for his sources. That has happened to me 50 times mm. and it happened to me last week and it was exactly the same. We brought them in, cup of tea, no comment, no comment, no comment. But the best uh, compliment I got from it was loads of guards have read it. It was written for guards because I wanted guards to respect the book. Mm. And a couple of guards, one guard said to me, Michael, you know far too much about our job. <laughs> so that was a great compliment for me. So look, it took me really, it took me, it was five years to finish it, but really it took me, it was so bad. I had to learn how to write as a, a writer without sounding terribly pretentious. And I had to learn how to build arcs of characterization and all that sort of stuff. It's very interesting. And it's it's a nice diversion from what I normally do. And it's 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 actually quite enjoyable when you have so much time to and so much work, so many words to do something like that. Yeah, I, I need to know, what did you write it on? What's your device of choice? Um, I wrote it. I got I'm look. I'm talking to you now on my MacBook Pro. Ah, oh, good man. Yeah. So I did it in that. Um, I think I actually, did I start right? I used to have an iPad and I think I started right. No, no, MacBook Pro. So MacBook, I, this is my second one. I got I got, a, I got one just after the Dwyer trial in 2015. So it was done on that in this one. Yeah, no, I, I just, I'm always curious on, because Luke O'Neill, uh, Professor Luke O'Neill, when he was writing his first book, he's a pen and paper man. And he was oh. saying that the pen and paper was a pain. And so what I told him to do was just to word vomit. So turn on the transcribe function and he just walks around and he dictates all the stuff and then he has to go in and correct it all and all the rest. But I'm always intrigued in what writers use to write in terms of the hardware and the software. Yeah. And what, what, what I mean, first, can I ask, did you like it? You were going to tell me yes. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's such a good read. And I said it to my sister yeah, as well. Okay. So, yeah. Oh, very good. Well, look, the one thing I would say is, you know, everybody has a book in their in their head. And it's extremely hard to get it on paper. It's really just hard to you, you visualize something. And, you know, I consider myself a very good news writer, completely different writing. But look, I'm proud of it. But what I would advise anybody, get it down, write the book. And the mistake I made was I've, the first iteration, I wrote it and then I sent it off. What you got to do is you got to write it, put it in a drawer for six months, come back, read it, then cry 
and then read it again. <laughs> that is... But I'm on book two already, so... Oh, good man. Okay, fantastic. Uh, well, that, Okay, that makes me happy. Um, yeah, look, as I said, I could talk to you for hours and days and weeks because I just find what you do fascinating. If you haven't listened to the podcast, you absolutely should. Uh, Michael O'Toole, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks, Jess. Yeah, if you're not already subscribed to Shattered Lives, I would highly recommend it because it gives amazing insight into various aspects of crime and criminality in this country. And I personally find it fascinating. Uh, I also mentioned our book club there, which is going to happen, by the way. It's taken me a bit of time, but it's going to happen. Uh, We will have all the details for you on next week's show. If you want to get involved, though, you can still throw your name in the hat. Uh, Just email techtalk at newstalk.com, put book club in the subject bar and we will be on to you. But now... How would you like to win a 55-inch N19 TV from Telefunken? I have reviewed this TV. You can head over to watch it on YouTube if you want. Just search for News Talk. But why not get one of your own? Uh, It is a frameless 4K UHD LED display that runs WebOS Smart TV and has an excellent soundbar built in. To be in with a chance to win, simply tell me what show is this theme tune from? Text the word TV plus your name and answer to 53106 at a cost of 30 cent and I'll announce the winner on next week's show. Uh, for more information about the Telefunken TV lineup, you can head over to telefunkenelectronics.ie. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we'll take a closer look at the new Mini Cooper EVs.